I want to take the next 20 minutes or so, and I want to talk about the job of a first responder. When I think about the job of a first responder, a lot of things come to mind. I think of service, someone who serves the community, who serves the people of the community for the betterment of the community. I think of training. A lot of training goes into being a paramedic, being a firefighter, being a police officer. A lot of training, a lot of hours, and that's continual training that you're constantly learning and you're constantly sharpening and you're constantly trying to be better at your craft. I think of protection, protecting us from fire, protecting us from physical harm and the bad guys, protecting us from maybe even just physical injury. I think of protection. Certainly I think of speeding tickets. I can't help it, but I think of speeding tickets. I had a, uh, a college teacher who spent the first kind of 10 years of his adult life on the Atlanta Metro Police Department, and he used to tell us about speeding tickets. He described giving a ticket as this. He said, I would float in behind them, I would lay them to the side, and leave them with a copy. That was his way of describing giving a speeding ticket, and I dare say I've had too many copies in my life. In a none recently, thankful, recent years, I've been a very good boy, but uh, I, do, I do think of speeding tickets. But you know what I think of most when I think of a first responder and what their job truly entails, and I think that's what all of us say, think about, saving someone's life. The times, and, and I know those aren't, those are few and far between, but the times where you literally save someone's life, performing just the right medical procedure at the precise time to save their, to save their life, to save them from death, to rush into the burning building and into the locked room to grab someone out and to save their life from the fire, to stand in harm's way, to save someone's life, to protect them. That is what I envision. Those are the moments that I envision when I think of a first responder. But what does, what does saving someone's life entail? How, if we were to break that down, what would that consist of to truly save someone's life, to, to earn the, the almost title of I'm a lifesaver, I save someone's life. I think it involves four things. First, I think it involves a helpless person in dire need. It involves someone who is utterly in despair and utterly needs your help. They are in dire need. They are helpless. They would not be saved if it wasn't for you. Those that, those that can save themselves don't need saving. They don't need a savior because they can save themselves. I used to spend my summers from 10th grade through my senior year of high school working at a, a summer camp and lifeguarding. And we'd go through the lifeguard training and get certified and first aid and CPR and, and all the rest of it. But you know what? Most people that jumped into it, a really large pool that we actually called the swimming hole. We had dug it out of the ground. It was massive. You could put hundreds of people in there. In my particular zone that I was watching that day, most people that jumped in, they didn't need saving. They could swim to shore all by themselves. They were just fine. But once in a great while, someone would jump in, and they would need saving. I remember a kid who jumped in, no shirt, but for some reason he was wearing army fatigues, like full pants with cargo pockets. And he went down, not all the way to the bottom, but he was probably about 10 feet down. And as he began to come up, those pockets just kind of ballooned and filled with water. And you could see him kick his legs and push his arms, and he'd move about two inches. And he'd do it again, and he'd move about two inches. I thought, you know, this kid needs saving. This kid, he's not making it up to the top if I don't jump in and help him. 
It requires someone true saving someone's life. Requires them to be helpless in an utter need, in a dire strait. It also requires this, though. It requires the right timing. If you don't get to that person in time, then it's pointless. Even if they were helpless, even if they were in a dire need. That's why response time from the first responders is measured across pretty much all departments across the United States. That, that's measured because we understand that when someone needs saving, time is of the essence. That the timing literally has to be as swift as possible, as perfect as possible. This is what we see in our superheroes, right? Spider-Man swoops in to save Mary Jane right as she's going to hit the ground. It's never like 100 feet in the air. It's always six inches from the ground. Superman stops the train right as it's going to fall over the edge of the tracks. The bomb technician disarms the bomb with one second left. I'd love to see a show one time where he disarms it like with three minutes left. It's like, oh, that was easy, and he just walks out. But it never happens, right? Because we understand, we understand the timing. So it requires a helpless person in dire need. It requires the right timing, but it also requires a capable savior. If you don't have the skills, if you don't have the tools, if you don't have the power, if you don't have the means in and of yourself, then trying to save that person isn't going to do much good. One thing that I learned in lifeguard training is that most people, if you were just to jump in a river and help someone drowning, if you don't have the pop proper training, then odds are you're going to be drowned yourself. That, that requires some training, and you all, you go through immense training to become capable of saving lives, of putting out fires, of protecting those. But it also requires this, and this is what we, we really focus on, is a willingness to sacrifice your own life if necessary. That's why when we watch that 9-11 that video, it, it so grips our heart because we understand that those, there were those that were running out of the buildings, but the first responders were running in with a willingness to sacrifice their own life if it was necessary. That's why on a day like today, we have such profound gratitude for those of you in this section and sprinkled all throughout the auditorium, first responders. We have so much gratitude and so much indebtedness because we understand that you have a willingness, if necessary, to lay down your own life and to put that on the line for us. And we understand that there, there are times where that's not what the job consists of, that there are quiet patrols, that there are days of cleaning the firehouse. There is paperwork, probably way too much paperwork. I know my brother hates his paperwork. We understand that, that, that the job involves that, but when we think of a first responder and their job and saving lives, we understand that there's a willingness to lay down your own life if necessary. But I want to connect the dot from the job of a first responder. I think that what we'll find in the Bible is that the, the job of Jesus, if we were to put it that way, the ultimate first responder, is saving lives. Look in Romans 5, verse 6. We read it a moment ago. But look in verse number 6. And we will find the job of a first responder, saving lives, outlined beautifully, compacted into one verse. Verse number six, for when we were yet without strength, a helpless person in dire need, in due time, the right timing, Christ, a capable Savior, Jesus Christ, God come down to man, born of a virgin, living a perfect life, dying on the cross willingly, 
raising from the dead, a capable Savior, Christ, died. A willingness to sacrifice his own life because it was necessary. And then it ends the verse with this, for the ungodly. Now, at this point, most modern Pennsylvanians would say, okay, saving someone, the job entails that, I get it. Even Jesus, Jesus and his job of, of saving someone, okay, I get it. The right timing, yeah, great. I, I agree with that. A capable Savior, yeah, okay, I, I believe in Jesus. A willingness to lay down his life, yes, we sang about that just a moment ago at the cross. And what a price to pay, you know, thank you, Jesus. But here's where we get stuck. A helpless person in dire need. He ends the verse and says, Christ died for the ungodly. That's not so pretty language. That for us, as a modern American, as a modern Pennsylvanian, someone that lives in the Pittsburgh greater area, Christ died for the ungodly. I hope you aren't talking about me. I hope that you're not saying, that's us, that's you. I mean, you don't, you don't know the good seeds I have sown. You don't know what church I go to. You don't know the prayers that I pray. You don't know the candles I light. You don't know the husband and the dad and, and the mom and the wife that I am. To, to say that I'm, I'm helpless of spiritual salvation, I'm, I'm in a dire need, I hope you don't think that's me. I mean, I'm, I'm from the Pittsburgh area, Pittsburgh, blue collar, work till the job gets done, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. This, that's, that's not how we describe ourselves. Helpless, in dire need, ungodly. I, I hope that you don't think Romans 5 is describing those in this room. Maybe that's describing someone, um, someone across the world in a Muslim country. Maybe that's describing the terrorists. Maybe that's describing someone else, but, but certainly not us. I'm able to bench press this much, this much. I've, I have saved lives, human lives. You may be able to outswim Michael Phelps. I don't know what you can do, but can I tell you the honest-to-goodness truth? This verse is talking about us. Me, my wife and kids, you. And it's, it's a little bit offensive, truthfully, to think that we are the helpless ones. We are the ones in need of saving. We are in dire need. That we, in, in a spiritual sense, have a need of salvation. But truth be told, that's the message of the Bible. The grand message of the Bible is that Jesus saves. It's what the choir sang about at the very beginning of the service, that they reiterate, they just kind of pounded that drum over and over and over again. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, just laced throughout the entire song. They even came to a point where they said, Oh, to grace, God's grace, how great a debtor. I'm indebted, I owe, because I was helpless, and Jesus saved me. And that, that's what the Bible is really, it's chalked full of verses like that. But sometimes, even in my own life personally, I grew up in church, and for probably a decade or more of church life, I missed it. I missed that grand truth, but this is what the Bible says. And even in Romans 5, I think Paul knew this wouldn't be taken well. So he takes the next two verses to expound on it a little bit. Look at verse number 7, and he talks about this helpless person in dire need. Look at verse number 7. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. So, I mean, hardly ever would you die for a righteous person, for a holy person, for someone that is, they're just the cream of the crop, they're the best. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure, or perhaps, perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. Maybe, but, and he's going to contrast this, not the righteous, not the good, but God commendeth, or God proved, or God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's elaborating on the helplessness that we have, on the dire need that we have, that we are not the righteous, we are not good, we are the sinners. We are the reason that, that Christ died because Christ, the ultimate first responder, a capable Savior with the right timing, knew that we were helpless and we were in dire need. Ephesians 2 tells us essentially the same thing. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, For by grace, God's grace, you're saved through faith. And then he elaborates and he says, And that's not of yourselves. It's not you. It's not your works. And he says exactly that. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I think Paul knew what we would do. If it came to our spiritual salvation and we wanted to save ourselves, and we wanted to contribute to the pot a little bit. Paul and Jesus knew this, that if salvation was one iota about us, that we would boast. He says it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's suppose for a moment that you all today decided that you wanted to give me a truck, which if you want to, hey, have at it. But let's just, let's just suppose, we'll, we'll fantasize for a moment. You wanted to give me a truck. If it could be three-quarter ton, four-wheel drive, that would be awesome, or bigger. But let's say that you did. And you said, you know what? Let's, we're going to take you down right here to Cochrane, right down the road. We're going to get you a truck. We're going to pay for the whole thing. And we get to the end, and we're signing the paperwork, and I, and I pull a quarter out of my pocket. I say, you know what? I appreciate you doing this. Let me chip in a little bit. <laughs> Let me, here's a quarter. I, I want to have a part in this. You know what happens now when I'm driving down the road and I pull up to church next Sunday. Whoa, nice truck. You picked a good color. Yeah, me and the church family, we, we bought it together. I now have the ability to say it was us. It was a group effort. We did it together. It, it's partly me. I can include myself in that. And Jesus Christ knew when it came to our spiritual salvation that it had to be all him. We had to be utterly, completely, totally helpless and in dire need, and he would do it all. Because if it was us, if we could just do a little bit of good works, if we could just do a little bit of church attendance, you know, I got baptized, I did this, I did that, then we could say, well, me and Jesus, team effort. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of good enough to get myself to heaven. I'm good enough to save myself. And the Bible says, no. You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. You're helpless and in dire need. Jesus kind of reiterated this in a different way in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, he said, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You say, what's that mean, we become as little children to enter into the kingdom of heaven? What, he, what Jesus is saying is that unless you have the same relationship of dependence and vulnerability that a child has to his parent, 
unless you have that relationship with your heavenly Father, then you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's utter helplessness. There is a dire need. There is a help me. I can't do it myselfness to being saved, to spiritual salvation. Now, the truth of Christianity is this, and I don't know how many in the room are Christians. I would say the majority, but certainly not all, I wouldn't think. I wouldn't suppose that. The truth of Christianity is this. It's utterly pessimistic and utterly optimistic at the same time. It is, it is utterly pessimistic. The Bible says, and Jesus says, that you are such a sinner and you are so wrong that you are ungodly that you cannot earn salvation, that you literally need a Savior. And this goes beyond even what some of the pessimistic philosophy of the ages has taught us. Nietzsche said that most people were terrible. Freud said that most people were terrible. But Nietzsche nor Freud said, I'm terrible. Neither of them said we're all terrible. But that's what the Bible says. We sin. We're sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. No religion is as pessimistic as that. I'm telling you the truth. No religion is. But it accounts for reality. If that's not true, then where did all this evil come from? Why do we need protectors? Why do we need to defend ourselves against terrorist attacks if that's not true? But on the flip side of that coin, no religion is as optimistic as Christianity is. It says that although you're utterly in a dire need and you are helpless, that if you believe the determining factor is not you, it's him. The determining factor is Jesus and what he did. Christianity says that you're totally accepted, that you're saved by grace, that it's possible to live forever, that you can have true satisfaction, that you are loved unconditionally. Now that is beyond optimistic. That's as hopeful and as comforting and as helpful as you can possibly get. C.S. Lewis described us as just humans, as people who are living outside of a door, wanting to know what's beyond the door, wanting to get in. And we all have this desire for something beyond this life. We all have this innate, uh, even sense of beauty inside of ourselves. That where does that, where does that come from? That we appreciate the sunsets and we appreciate the Grand Canyon and these sorts of things. That it's it's built inside of us this hope for something better and something more real and something grander than this. And Christianity accounts for the real aspirations that we have as humans. It's, it's completely and totally optimistic. And what Jesus Christ does is he spans the gap. He takes the pessimism and the optimism and he brings them all together in the cross. In Jesus, we deserve punishment, but we're beautiful and we're valuable at the same time. In Jesus, he ties these together that God's wrath is satisfied in punishing sin, but at the same time, his love is satisfied in pouring out grace to us in an offer of salvation. And only Jesus Christ ties these together. Only Jesus Christ can take the pessimism and the op optimism and bring it all really to a head and to a screeching halt. But the truth of the matter is this. Many of us, we don't like to hear this. We don't like the pessimism part. We like the optimism. That's great. God loves me. But we don't like some of the, the dose of reality and the truth of the matter. And the truth is this, that God wants to save us. But in order for saving to happen, we have to be helpless and in dire need, and we have to see ourselves that way.
We have to be the person who's drowning and is crying, help, I need it. I can't do this myself. I can't make it myself. I can't earn it myself. I can't work myself. I can't do enough good myself. We have to see ourselves as helpless and in dire need for the ultimate first responder to perform the ultimate act of saving a life. We have to see ourselves as the victim, as the one that's helpless. Now, at this point, it would be natural. And this, if you say, what is this point? This point is the end of the sermon. At this point, it would be natural for someone to ask, so, okay, that's true. He did this because he wants to save me. He wants to incorporate those four items of what saving is. And I am saved by grace alone. I don't have to do anything other than accept it. I don't have to work. Jesus doesn't want me to perform. He doesn't want me to do a bag of tricks. Why would, why would I resist this? Why wouldn't more churches teach this? Why wouldn't every church talk, talk about those verses and that we're saved by grace alone and not of ourselves, not of works? Why would we possibly, in our hearts, feel some sort of resistance to the gospel message? And I think the reason is twofold. The first is pride. We're Americans. We don't like to be helpless. We're the pe- we go give the humanitarian aid. We don't get it. We are the helpers, not the helpless. And we don't like to see ourselves in that light, certainly not spiritually, certainly not talking about eternity, that I'm, in, I'm helpless and I'm in dire need. What, you, what you'll find in responding to people, what I found as I lifeguarded for a number of years, is that most people wait to the last possible moment to cry out for help until they're utterly sure of it. Those, those people that, that in, the, in the pool there that I would jump in to save, sometimes we would even get to shore, to, to the deck, and they would look at me and say, why did you save me? I didn't need help. They, they would be mad that I jumped in to save them like they could have done it because their pride was hurt. We wait to the last possible moment to cry out for, for help. We try to do everything in our own power that we possibly can before we have to ask someone else. And our pride plays a factor in why we, why we resist this message. But there's a, there's a second reason. Why don't people want to hear you're only saved by grace? You're only saved by God. It's not of yourself. You, you have to be utterly helpless. You have to be like a child independent. Why do people prefer a religion sometimes that will not say you're terrible sinners and will not say you're utterly saved by grace, but will say you're okay Try to do good and maybe you'll make it. Why do people sometimes prefer that? And here's why. If you are in helpless and dire need and you are utterly saved by grace and not of yourself and, and Jesus Christ saves you, there's nothing he can't ask of you. There's nothing he can ask of you. And that scares us. We would have to have then a profound sense of gratitude for someone who saved my life, for someone who saved your life, our life, spiritually speaking. And when that, when you see him as that, as the Savior, as my Savior, then all of a sudden, all bets are off and Jesus can ask anything of me that he wants. But we like to say, nope, I got my quarter. This is part me. No, that's, that's off limits. 
No, this, this is, you can't ask that of me, Jesus, because I'm, we're, this is a team effort. We're in this together. We're compadres. And we resist that because we know what it takes. But can I, can I say this? Just from personal testimony, I understand that resistance because I was there. It's been a number of years now, but I can remember recognizing this truth that I had to be utterly helpless, that I had to be in a dire need, recognizing that and resisting it. And my heart put up walls, and I didn't want to accept it. And for months, I wrestled with the truth. But can I tell you the truth? When I accepted Jesus, when I saw myself in utter despair, and I called out and said, Jesus, would you save me? I recognize I cannot do it myself. The greatest decision, hands down, I've ever made in my whole life. And I've made some good ones. I married a great wife, and I do it a million times over again. But the greatest decision I've ever made in my entire life was the decision to cry out for help and to say, Jesus, would you save me? Because I am in utter despair. I am in need. I cannot do it myself. I am the sinner. I am ungodly. Would you give me the optimism and give me the love, and would you help me? Would you save me? And the, the burden of sin that was on my shoulders was lifted, and I can't explain it. I can only say you have to experience it. I cannot explain the sleep that I got that night after I cried out and asked Jesus to save me. I slept better than I had in months and possibly even years because the burden and the guilt and the weight and the worry of is this me, am I doing enough, am I good enough, was gone. And I had Jesus reach out and save me and help me. And can I tell you just from personal experience, there is nothing like having a Savior in Jesus Christ. There's nothing like it. It is not burdensome. It is not, oh, he can ask anything of me now, and, and, I, and I resent it. It is so freeing. As, as the, the police officers in this room recognize, freedom is not the presence of do whatever you want. Freedom is the presence of operating within certain laws and certain guidelines. If we didn't have laws, if we didn't have law enforcement we wouldn't have freedom. We'd have anarchy. And when you find Jesus and he becomes your savior and your king, you begin to have a set of spiritual laws, so to speak, and that's where true freedom is. That's where the peace of God that passes all understanding is. So today I say this, whether you spend your life as a first responder or not, whether it's your first time in this building or your thousandth time in this building, if you have never seen your own need of saving, I'm going to ask you today to see it. And not only to see it, but to ask Jesus to save you. To ask him to say, Jesus, I am I'm helpless. I can't do it myself. I can't earn it. I, I can't get there in my own power. I recognize it. And I turn to you and I ask you to save me. Today, if you've never done that, we're going to give you an opportunity here in just a few moments to do just that. Would you bow your head and pray with me for just a moment?